Hello again, good morning, good afternoon, and or good evening, depending on where you are in the world. I'm Dan, your host here at Burley Fisher's Isolation Station, and today I am joined by our reporter at large, uh, Anthony Hurley. How's it going, Ant? Hey, Dan, yeah, I'm good. How are you? Uh, yeah, very well, very well. Just kind of basking in the sun and po- podcasting. Uh, yeah, beautiful morning. Um, pod basking. Pod basking, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, Ant, who have you got lined up for us today? Uh, so today we've got uh, my friend um, and the poet and filmmaker Caleb Femi um, talking about his new collection, Poor, and a load of other stuff. Yeah, yeah, I've um, I've had a listen to the interview and it's it's super wide ranging and super interesting, and I'm I'm, I'm sure you guys are going to love it. Also, unfortunately, we are joined by Mr. Samuel Fisher. How are you? How are you doing, Sam? <laughs> I'm very well. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Dan. <laughs> Um, <laughs> as you asked, I'm fine. <laughs> Enjoying being on my own at home, having a great time. Having a great time. Um, yeah. What, what are you doing? Well, just been sending out orders, you know, working on my navel. Uh, <laughs> but I just wanted to wanted to say uh, quickly uh, a couple of thanks, firstly to SF Side, who was our guest bookseller this yeah. week over on Twitter, yeah. uh, who's been recommending kids' books for those uh, strained and tired parents who are fulminating in a chaotic stew of Play-Doh and crayons. Um, <laughs> Whose life has become a Play-Den. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so if anyone does need any more books, just remember this broken record saying podcast at burleyfisherbooks.com. We can get them out to you. That's podcast at burleyfisherbooks.com. So what have you been up to, Dan? Uh, well, I, I, the gaming's dropped off <laughs> in the last few days. Um, and I've, I've actually been keeping a plague journal, uh, inspired by my namesake, Daniel Defoe, uh, who obviously wrote, uh, Year in the Plague City. Um, unlike his very stark and, uh, brutal descriptions of London under plague, mine are mostly just sort of asinine observations and complaints about uh, the quality of my dad's <laughs> cooking. Uh, <laughs> I tell you what, that sounds utterly fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> we can't wait to read yeah. that. When's it out? Any publishers uh, on the line, just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there'll, be, there'll be an e-book coming out on Amazon in the next uh, three Sorry, or five weeks. Uh, with Amazon. Um, <laughs> I know you've been away uh, from the shop a couple of weeks, mate. Uh, yeah. The messaging has gone awry. They'll take anyone. They'll take anyone. <laughs> Bezos is signing you up. Bez- yeah, yeah, yeah. I've taken Bezos's shilling. <laughs> we would like to say, if anyone else has been working on the play journal, please do write in. We'd love to read them out um, in a sarcastic yeah, voice yeah, yeah. <laughs> for other people to enjoy. Yeah. So if that appeals to you, please do write into us so that we can yeah. have a laugh yeah. together. Podcast at burleyfisher.com. Oh, sorry. Podcast at burleyfisherbooks.com. So should we, um, should we crack on and, uh, get, and get into the interview? Mm-hmm. So Caleb's going to open with a poem um, called And Here's to Spring Comes to Us with Open Arms. So that's the poem he's going to open with. Sweet. Uh, so I'll hand over to Anne and Caleb. Here too, spring comes to us with open arms, and it looks like this. 
a few youngers sprawled like a deck of trick cards on the back stairs, talking all that talk about any day now they'll be taken under the wing of a dragon. Little cousins unseen in a side pocket of the function, plotting a sleepover. If you ask my mum and I ask yours, they'll say yes. Twilight and three unbroken voices at the back of the bus. Flat earth theories, flat asses, flat shoes, a sweet nonsense chatting. Wickedest wine from Chantel and the boy would have fell on a dance floor if the arms of his brethren didn't hold him up like scaffolding. Two men bouncing along the pavement, through another eye they looked like young dolphins splicing coastal waves. Two schoolgirls walking down the street laughing, nobody knows why. A room of unravelling ribbons reaching for the same microphone to spit over an Eskimo instrumental. A boy smiles at the mirror welcoming a new strip of muscle breaking through the sheen of boyishness. A fresh pair of Air Jordans clean like a smile and everywhere they touch is hallowed ground. A boy who takes pain like stone looks up and imagines stars hanging in the night sky like meditating monks. A girl sends a ris risky text. The universe gasps and sound falls in on itself. A riskier reply is received. At dusk, the boy walks through the park. No police, no ops, only the company of spirits. Alright, good afternoon listeners, uh, welcome to um, the Burley Fisher Isolation Station podcast, episode 3. This is um, with Caleb Femi, the writer, poet and filmmaker and um, most of all friend who I met 10 years ago. I can't believe it's been 10 years, but it actually has been 10 years. Yeah, I was thinking this this morning. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, this this winter will be this 10 years. This winter is 10 years, yeah. And yeah, Caleb's first collection, Poor, is coming out with Penguin Books this July 2020. So we're going to talk about that and we're going to talk about everything in between. And yeah, first up, man, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm, I am surprisingly taking this strange time that we're living in really well. I, I thought that I would always take it well, but I didn't really believe it. Um, but so far, so good. Mm -hmm. I, I keep thinking, maybe there's, because there's a part of me, the part of me that loves sci-fi, <laughs> apocalyptic, mm -hmm. post-apocalyptic, like, vibes. <laughs> this part of me believes that it's gonna, it's going to go in that direction. Yeah, but, that energy. Yeah, but then it's like, if that energy is fueling me to, like, write more mm -hmm. and to, like, create stuff more, Mm -hmm. It's dri driven me more to want to to live and want to document mm. stuff. So there, there is that sort of thing in your head of that has crossed your mind. Like, what is the point if it's actually just? Yeah, but it, it's crossed my mind in a very like in and out thing. I've, yeah. I've not chewed on it. I've, it's not marinated at all. Like, okay, cool. Is it futile to then create work if this is the end? <laughs> if if you had your favourite meal in the world and someone told you this is the last time you're going to eat it, mm -hmm. you're not going to say, oh, what's the point? Because I'm never going to, like, taste it again. You're like, 
gonna take your time in indulging in that and I feel like I I'm more like right now I'm I just want to indulge in like everything that makes me happy and that mostly has to do with creating new work like writing and nice and conceptualizing things yeah so this isn't really like an unfamiliar headspace in terms of I mean is this where you write kind of at home um this is where most of my ideas begin this is where I, I if I write at home it's it's either because I've been hit with like a beautiful moment of illumination and I just need to get everything out mm -hmm. or this is like I hate I would hate to have here as my permanent space of writing so mm -hmm. I try I try not to write in here I write commissions in here because like business business yeah so it's <laughs> like so I'll, I'll do it but I won't enjoy it um, but writing writing for myself and writing for like to create something new I usually like to go to a different space to do that in yeah I used to work in um, like the Royal Academy all right um, they have like an academia's room cool they gave me like a free membership there mm. so I used to go there and do a lot of writing get immersed in it yeah um, I find it super cliche to go to cafes and <laughs> take out my laptop or like do that I find I find it really like oh my god everyone knows the trope so yeah yeah i feel self-conscious about doing that nice yeah. yeah i guess the ra might be closed but maybe commissions won't be flowing in right now yeah so maybe the, the home could become the new the new space yeah the new space yeah. yeah right yeah so cool yeah i mean um i was just saying before we started that reading poor last night for me because i haven't read it um well i hadn't read it until last night was a huge huge deal because having met you Mm. those years ago and I was talking about this kind of when you meet someone I think you just know they're going to do something mm. just uh, yeah I felt there was this huge energy there and what I was wondering was that you've developed a lot of mediums filmmaking mm. writing and why you think poor might have emerged as like the kind of manifestation of mm. all those years I think well the first major one yeah the first major one I think for me, my initial engagement with writing and with creating art was uh, a cathartic release of everything that had come before, before like I met you before 20, 2010, mm -hmm. do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Where I grew up, how I grew up and the process in which like the, the self-developmental process of like coming out of like a difficult area and and sort of creating a new version of your life that wanted to go in a particular direction mm -hmm. in that time writing was something that was always keeping me sane allowing me to sort of find strength find inspiration and find confidence to sort of and find escapism as well mm -hmm. um so when people started to hear my work or read my work, it was always about everything that had come before. Mm. It was about growing up in Peckham and and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so it kind of made sense that in order to, because that's such a huge part of my life, that needed to be the thing that came out first 
And the reason why I say that is because I'm no longer that person now. I've developed into someone who's totally different and someone who's like almost like kind of middle class. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? In just in the sense of like what I'm interested in and the things that I do and all of that and and also like even on a art artistic level I'm interested I'm not really interested in the themes and the format or the genre should I say of like the kind of things that I talk about so like that sort of everyday realism. Mm -hmm autobiographical slash archival lens that I, that exists that is very prominent in my work mm. I'm I'm sort of kind of past that or I've developed that into sort of uh, a pocket that is sci-fi and fantasy based that's mm. where I see myself going Wow. But before I get there, I think I needed to pay homage to everything that... You need to go through the yeah, portal of where you came from. Yeah, yeah. So kind of like doing poor is like, okay, cool. This is, this is like something that I needed to write for me mm -hmm. at a particular point in my, in, in my life. And after this, I'm now going to talk about something else. I never want to talk about these things again in mm. this way. Mm. I, I'm interested in like exploring a different genre. Mm. Yeah. So the kettle's just boiled. Yeah. So just covering that. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible reading the work because it touches on so much on an incredibly deep level of being a young man growing mm. up where you grew up in Peckham. Mm the sort of beauty but also the tragedy mm -hmm. of what you've experienced mm. and it feels like you know you said before this that uh, you tried to create universes but mm. I really felt last night that I was deeply immersed in your universe of then mm. and it was when you say you wanted to you had to write it for yourself mm. was that like a process of dealing with those yeah. things inside your head and yeah absolutely it's like the process of dealing with the loss of of friends, dealing with the loss of a time as well. Sometimes, do you ever mourn like a brilliant summer holiday that you had when you were younger? Yeah. You know, like sometimes it's that, and also a lot of. I think Paul mostly is taking a lens and like correcting it because I think when we look at like what it means to be a youth in like Britain, a poor youth, a working class youth is usually associated with like violent statistics and with the culture of violence. And I feel like I kind of owed it to myself to pay homage to difficult times, yes, but also put a lens on the more beautiful times, the times that are funny, the times that are mm. like about love and mm those sort of mundane, everyday, brilliant, but at the same time boring things, you know? Yeah. Um, so... I felt reading it, there was one poem in that way that stood out, which was, um, here too, spring comes to us with open arms. Yeah. That felt like the tender exploration of just childhood, basically. Mm. And maybe you looking back at those times where you were very young and, mm. you know, those nascent sort of 
moments and there's a line at the end walking through the park mm. in maybe the darkness but it wasn't with there was no accompaniment of the authority or the mm. police it was just you and the spirits mm. Mm. and I felt that was really just I don't know I could see the boy mm. at one with that place mm. and not intimidated yeah yeah and I think yeah that's certainly something that struck me um one day and I needed to articulate it. There's something about the design of our residential areas that is very sinister. Um, and I really wanted to talk about it in this book. I wanted to talk about our use of concrete. Uh, almost like sometimes, or, or, or brutalist inspired like landscapes. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, I've always found them fascinating because the implications of, of that is so deep. For example, with that poem, how do you, the, it, it was sparked from a question that I asked myself one day, when you grow up in the brilliantness of nature, when you grow up with the proximity of having your, like a beautiful garden full of trees or you get to see like hedgehogs and mm foxes and all these like beautiful natural things when your experience of summertime of the seasons of like spring summer autumn winter is so profound that you you when you read like the work of romantic of, of the romantics you get it because you grew up in those same aesthetics mm. but if you've grown up with concrete left, right and centre, mm. how do you also, like, what is your version of spring mm. if it doesn't include the blossoming of, like, flowers or, like, hedgehogs coming out or mm. groundhogs or, mm. do you know, all these, like, things that do something to you as a human being, like, your connection to nature is so important. So... They say that certain words are falling out of the dictionary mm. or children growing up in cities don't experience nature like would you yeah. say that's really fair like to kind of put it on those children exactly which is why the book questions the authorities mm. who is behind the design mm. of these areas who designs these like who who are the architects who are the um, interior designers who are the landscape designers who are the people who design these spaces um, and and therefore create this impossible situation where young people don't have that connection to nature anymore. And then we sort of shine a light on them and ask them why they are not, why they don't have, you know, the connection to nature that their grandparents yeah. have, mm. you know. Um, yeah, so definitely that's something that I wanted to sort of to question as well our use of concrete like concrete is such a prominent material mm. in my in the memory of my childhood mm. I don't have much much um, memory of the outside world that mm. doesn't include concrete mm. you know and how has that shaped me it's remarkable it's remarkable the relationship you create and how you sort of personify material yeah in the collection there's a line um, if these walls could talk, our ears would bleed. There's another line, um, concrete smells like a siege, mm. that there's like this bodily thing that you're being held in this 
creature almost of, yeah. of the city and it, it feels like you the poet is sort of bearing witness to all these things but also you're kind of in conversation with the buildings as well yeah when did you sort of see that relationship because I think buildings um, tell you how you should feel about yourself mm. or they manipulate you as like you walk into there's a when you walk, someone said to me in the research of, of doing this, um, I, I I came across a clip. I can't remember um, the name of the of the architect. He said that you walk into a private hospital and it's designed to make you feel like you're going to get better. To, to it's designed to make you expectant that things will be positive at the end of the day. You walk into a general hospital and things are. Uh, you, you sort of prepare yourself for the worst mm -hmm. do you know what I mean and that's all down to the the space the design of the space the mm -hmm. use of like these blaring fluorescent lights and these these like bland walls that just kind of prevent always mm -hmm. that kind of tell you that look if you should face the worst like prepare now for yeah. it um, and I think that that's 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 interesting. You walk into, if you look at the, the residential houses, um, some of them are so bad that how can you feel good about yourself if the place you live in is dilapidated and run down and terrible? Where do you get your, your confidence from? If you lived in a house that was more dignified, then you're at least able to start to feel like someone of value, you know? Um, and there's, a, I mean, there are poems in the collection where you have the conversation of juxtaposition between the, the designer talking and the actual resident's yeah. relationship and how they're yeah. so totally skewed and... Totally skewed. The intentions of an architect when it comes to residential homes, especially those of like low-income residential homes, public housing, is never the same. Mm -hmm. There's always this intention that these people, and North Peckham Estate is, is a perfect example. You know, they create this huge 65-story multi, like, you know, it's 1,444 homes in it. And it's contained, it's self-containing. You create a self-containing estate with poor people and low maintenance. And you think that on paper, that's going to be a good thing. Mm. But in reality, it's terrible. And there's always that disparity between the intention of the design and the reality of its lived experience. Yeah, and now I guess we're at a phase where it's gone into a kind of steep decline, but then there's been this kind of gentrification and re, this new interest, like in the book, you, mm. you remember the, a moment where people with big money come to the estate where you're working and then mm. you understand it takes on a new yeah. existence after that. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. Do you feel like in that process there's been like a sweeping under the rug, money moving into these areas and... Yeah, I think, I think when we look at gentrification, it's a tricky one. I've been, it's been on my mind for many years and I've sort of come to a space where like, I, I welcome all the new, new opportunities that come into like the influx of new businesses and all these like weird cafes that are really nice at the same time and mm. all these things 
but then the pricing out of people and 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 people come what not only because all the houses are cheap but there's also like a cultural value that the the people who were there before have like cultivated you know years after years after years mm. out of the conditions the very mm. conditions that has that are so like it like that has made them a target almost like they've made the best out of yeah poor conditions and that has made them they have become a victim of their own survival their own ability to thrive in like such poor conditions and then you've got this whole new money that kind of keeps all the bits that it wants to keep in terms of the aesthetics and mm -hmm. and sort of the like exoticism that exists in these areas and then removes the undesirable bits which is usually the people and it's always done in a very like in, in a very insidious way but also in a way that implicates the wrong people mm -hmm. like we look at the new people who have come to rent or the new people who have come to buy up space but we're not looking at the legislations that have, have created these conditions and these opportunities like the legislations that are missing that doesn't protect the people who are most vulnerable mm. to these changes yeah and there's another line um, a system of nerves like mm. you call the the estate and just reading the the, the poems I feel they do have like a natural sort of narrative in that you kind of become you talk about the, the person who lives below you who plays countdown mm. really loud and then you talk about in one poem a boy sh sitting on a shrine he creates for his brother who's mm. gone away in mysterious circumstances and people come to this shrine and they leave offerings and it sort of has this slight like using the space to kind of transcend it in a way mm. I kind of want to stick with the poetry really because yeah let's do it there's so much in to dig out that's obviously incredibly personal for you. Mm. There are moments where I felt, you know, in the kind of very tragic, you're trying to create a relationship with it because you, you do address some of those things head on, mm. not only in the loss of your friends, which, you know, I remember mm. happening to you. All right, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The funeral. Yeah. The yeah, right. Yes, you remember that when. Um, and I remember you disappearing, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's so weird. You know, I think you're the only person that has experienced the end of of like port, like because we were in uni, and at that moment in time, I, I thought that the life that I had, I had come from was over. I thought I was in a sort of new space now. And for that to happen, that was a weird crossover because it's like, how do I even explain to people mm. that, like, for example, do you remember um, there was a girl in our in our in our year, yeah, who lived. I'll tell you her name afterwards because um, you do definitely know her. She lived across the road. Really? from that from that incident she saw it happen mm -hmm. and I was there and when I went there she was there and it was just the most that was the first time where like there was such a crossover of like this is a life that I've 
this is how I've grown up and wow. this is where I am now. Yeah. And the two things just like overlapped and I didn't know what to say to her because she was like hysterical because she'd never seen that. But then like she's now seen me and I'm like, yeah, this is normal. That was my friend. And do you know that? Yeah, that yeah was, I can't imagine, man. But you can because you were there. <laughs> well, like in the sense of like you saw it happen. You saw it. I saw it happen to you. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. it was. Um, what, what I'm saying is, and what you can pro- people can probably hear is that there is an incredible loss mm. and tragedy. Mm. You you explore that really head on in a lot mm. of the poems. There are also moments where you kind of. I think it's in the poem two seconds before the trigger is pulled. Yeah, where someone feels they're gonna meet their end Mm. and then it's kind of like death is sort of laughing at them Mm. at the person that Mm. taking a breath of air because it's as powerful as Mm. the end you know and then there's another moment where you're in hospital Mm. and you describe death as coming down to check on plants Mm. in the ward Mm. for people that could never have haven't experienced Mm. that proximity Mm. to death um, yeah, I mean, are you playing with that? Um, I, yeah, I feel like I feel like I've had too many near-death experiences to not sort of see the or to entertain the possibility that there is a higher power that's in one in one respectful way that's like protecting me. But then in a more sinister way, you can see it as more of just like toying with me. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. sometimes it feels like someone is toying with you, like some greater entity is is almost like treating you as this like object of entertainment mm-hmm. or of like some sort of weird ridicule. But then sometimes it feels like yeah, I don't know, being in hospital and, and you this feel was the because presence. You were in hospital because you got shot. Got shot, yeah. Um, and the, the previous poem was about, was the, a mo- was about sort of the same incident, but the nature, the original nature, nature of that incident was a trigger being pulled. Yeah. And not, and a trigger being pulled to my head and nothing happening um and just like trying to digest that and you sort of see it in a way where you you it can be seen yeah like i said it can be seen as a very like well you know something is fortunate Mm. um for you or protecting you but Mm. then you can see it as as something is having a good old laugh yeah in the same way that you know weird there's that trope of like that boy in the garden with the magnifying glass who's like melting all the ants mm-hmm. and there's an ant that's it's just that like keeps circling around and not quite burning off yet and and it's just like hmm I have this power I can just yeah snatch you up like that but I'll toy with you for a bit yeah actually I'm just I'm just going to go back to what you just said because mm. in the poem trauma is a warm bath yeah so many times in the collection there's this kind of supernatural or feels like this the, the spirit of the people mm. you're talking about are so close to the bone mm. so near 
and then at the end of that poem there's a line like um, what a farce mm. how could it possibly be that that world could save you from the, the reality of your mm. situation mm. and were you trying to find a balance in these poems of documenting absolute autobiography mm. but then at like what stage was it you could unlock those moments and transcend them with the writing or the poetry or the supernatural yeah you see because the supernatural has always existed in, in my life from when I was younger I mean in one sense my father is a bishop mm. but also in another sense I, I grew up in an area that was very much um, like imbued with like folklore and weird superstitions and weird like stories of like weird fantastical stories that what, was, what kind of thing like in terms of like oh this person here turns into a cat there, right. was, a, there was a man that everyone said in my estate said like he turns into a cat and everyone believed it and there was like lots of stories like voodoo stories and lots of like if someone gets arrested like their stories could eat I mean there's a story that you know I think there's like oh a story of that person either being a snitch or being someone who's able to like access black magic in mm. order to get away from whatever it is they're supposed to have done so it was very normal like for example Harry Potter wasn't something that was totally new for me and mm. and things like that because that was n very much normal like there was stories of everyday people who I would see and some sort of like fantastical thing attached to them even the the concrete the painting on the concrete board yeah that was a real thing there was this like mural on the wall <clears throat> that turned into a shrine because a lot of people felt like it gave them good luck and order this kind of stuff yeah you say the arthritis yeah. goes and the back pain goes exactly so and so gets pregnant and, it, and all of a sudden everyone's attributed this like thing to be, have like magic powers mm. and stuff like that so that I think supernatural and fantasy and all like a sense of magic has been present in my life for so long that it kind of feels normal when I talk about someone who's no longer alive for me to have this like sense of them possibly still being around mm. and also a lot of the things that has happened to me and other people there's always that sense of like either religion attached to it or mm. something else non-natural like supernatural mm. so and I think I think that's the direction because in the new work I'm creating, it gets very fantastical, and that's sort of the direction I want to create. We're going to get you to read a couple of poems, right, if yeah. that's right. Of course. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, if there's if there's you know um, a couple of, of things you've read recently that you would like to recommend to our listeners, like either a collection or a novel or something that maybe not recently, any time in your life has been significant. Like if you were going to be locked up in isolation and you could choose a book. In Praise of Shadows. Tanizaki, In Praise of Shadows, yeah. Yeah, it, nice. I really enjoyed that. It's a, nobody has has put the, forward the argument of why the bathroom is the most essential 
room in a house when thinking about architecture and that. This is so interesting because I feel for all people, especially in this city, and this is such an interesting time to talk about it, Mm. the home is basically the only space you've got sometimes to be creative. Yeah. So yeah, it it can be a really interesting time for people to explore the physical parts of the house. There's that amazing moment of, um, they say when Paul Simon wrote um, Sound of Silence Mm. for Simon and Garfunkel, Mm. he went into the bathroom and he liked to play the guitar in there because it had the natural reverb Mm. echo. And the light wasn't working. I think that was a power cut or it was just off. And he just walked into the bathroom and he just sang, hello darkness, my friend, I've come to speak with you again. Oh. Yeah. I love that story. That's amazing. And, you know, there's one of the greatest songs maybe ever written Mm. in a bathroom. Yeah. So... That is... It's so weird how that... Because you would have thought maybe he was looking out into some... I genuinely thought (laughs) it was, like, this deep, introspective, like, space that he was in. Yeah. (laughs) And I might have misquoted the lyric there. It might be, I've come to talk to you or speak to you again. But I think the most important thing is it happened in that space. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe people should be talk, thinking about writing in the bath or something. Yeah, no, de- explore the potential of every room in your house because it could be that room. Um, <laughs> I love that. Okay, cool. So, Oh, right. I should probably tell you about uh, a brilliant writer also. And there's I one more lived, coming. There's one more. <laughs> uh, a coll- so it's a pamphlet called While I Yet Live by Boyega Odubanjo. Um, this is a, a, a fantastic um, collection. Uh, it's not a collection, it's a pamphlet. <laughs> um, but if you go on Bad Betty Press, um, they're like a independent um, press, mostly of poetry. They have a great lineup, a great roster there. Um, but yeah, Boyega Odubanjo is someone who's going to He's going to, his first collection is going to take the world by storm. Trauma's a warm bath is something that sort of connects the two of us. So probably that. Trauma is a warm bath. Just ask the boy who carries anger on his shoulders like two cannons. Blastoise bold. Hardened like old eyes that know how wasteful it is to cry in a drought. Who took another boy's life at a funeral. Often he would tell the shiny version to a girl who cornrowed his hair on her living room floor. She would hear of how he pulled the trigger easy, like turning off a bathroom light switch. She knew there was too much theatre in his voice, decided to run him a bath and told him, when you can no longer shrug that day away, the bosom of a warm bath will see you through. Just ask the paramedic at the scene, He knew the body was shoebox empty, but all his training didn't tell him what to do when a boy gets shot at a funeral and a crowd are unwilling to ration bowed heads between two dead bodies. How bizarre it is to give CPR to a dormant body for 30 minutes. His sorriest apology. Just ask the mother who worked until her hands curled like boiling crabs to have sons on Schaefer shores fed him, bought him toothpaste for two decades almost, who would get a call that said she birthed her son into a casket after all. Just ask the boy writing this poem, 
who feels like death is a party all his friends were invited to but him, who scribbles the name of his dead friend on paper. He thinks the paper is a Ouija board. He thinks the poetry reading is a seance. What a farce, expecting the dead to speak in the voice of the living. Thanks so much to Caleb for taking the time to talk to us on the isolation station this week. It's great to hang out. His collection Poor is out with Penguin Books on the 31st of July and you can pre-order it from the shop um, at the link below or you can um, email podcast at burleyfisherbooks.com. Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely send us an email. And if you have any questions or even any thoughts, we'd love to hear them. And remember, we are also on Twitter and Instagram and maybe even TikTok soon. Who knows <laughs> uh, with the exciting social media landscape that we have currently. I just want to give a shout out to our worldwide listeners. Now, um, obviously, we've got loads in the Anglophone world, but uh, I want to shout out our one Greek listener, our one Malaysian listener and our one <laughs> Romanian listener. So big up. Thank you very much for listening. And we'd love to hear from you guys and what things are like in the world of books in your little corner of the world. Sam, so what have we got coming up for people to look forward to? So next week on Wednesday, so we'll be speaking to Will Harris. Uh, Will Harris? Will Harris? Harris. Slightly, <laughs> slightly Scottish there. Uh, <laughs> and Nisha Ramaya about their debut collections, Rendang and States of the Body, produced by Love. Uh, they'll be talking about poetry and connection in this age of crisis that we're living in. Sweet, so we've already got that to look forward to. And then on Friday, uh, I'll be speaking to Ruth Gilligan about her new book, The Butchers, which is set uh, around a cult, I'd say, of traditional butchers in Ireland during the late 90s, during the um, the British cow disease crisis. Wow, wow sounds crazy. Uh, and it's mostly focuses on uh, one of the wives of one of the butchers who is isolated so it's kind of about plague and isolation, which feels quite <laughs> relevant to the current moment. So I'm really excited to talk to her about that. It's going to be brilliant. That sounds awesome. That sounds like exciting and extreme. So yeah, big up. So I think, well, I've been convinced to do a short extract of my uh, plague journey. really has to bend his arm. So you're lucky to, to hear this. <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm a shy man, you know. I'm a shy man. I do not like being in the spotlight. So Dan's, Dan's going to read us out. And um, if, if anyone else wants to share their, their plague journals uh, for Dan to read out in a sarcastic voice, then please do get in touch. Send him in. But for now, thanks so much for joining us today. And we'll speak to you next week. See you next time. Enjoy your weekend indoors. Plague Journal, Day 3 I am now growing weary of my exile and bitter at my banishment to the provinces. Everywhere I look are sunken eyes and downcast faces, shuttered curtains and fearful glances. Two weeks ago I was a man, a bookseller perhaps, but today I am a boy, a mere boy, returned to live beneath the cruel tyranny of his father's roof. The slop upon which he demands we subsist is little better than gruel, lentils with a few lonely carrots added here and there. I suggested he add paprika for flavour, 
but he glanced at me in a fury and said he knew well enough how to cook. The night of that meal I coughed and coughed, but I know not whether it was from the Sainsbury's basic foodstuffs or, dare I say it, dare I think it, the plague, the pestilence, the pestilence. Diary, supplies are running short now. The kegs of artisan IPA that I have painstakingly rationed have run dry. Dry and empty. Empty like this soul of mine, secluded in a cell devoid of laughter and life. But, as ever, my mind returns to my manuscript. Dostoevsky once said that beauty shall save the world, and if it be so, then I believe that this document which springs forth from these hands may yet have the power to redeem this island of ours. O oh, muse, do not take me yet. O oh, muse, grant me some time to finish this book which I feel, which I know must be read, must be heard. My shrew of a sister spends her days powdering her nose, while I, draggled yet handsome, weary yet genius, work tirelessly and thanklessly on the great task of literature. But a luck, there is a banging at my door. Cruel banging, oh, oppressive banging, how you make this head throb with your noise. I shall go and investigate. Uh, what? What? Mum, look, I told, look, I told you I'm doing my podcast. I told you I'm doing my podcast. Look, I don't care if dinner's ready. I've got to do. I've got to do this. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, it's my space, and you're just invading it. And I, I really don't appreciate it. And I, if you could just fuck off downstairs, yeah. Um, just, be, just put the food in the microwave. Put the food in the microwave. I'll heat up later. Bourbon chips, yeah. Right. Thanks. Uh, love you. Yeah. Fuck's sake. Burley Fisher's Isolation Station was brought to you by the team at Burley Fisher Books. Your hosts today were Dan Fuller, Anthony Hurley and Sam Fisher, joined by Caleb Femi. This show was produced by Dan Fuller, with music by Anthony Hurley, and above all was made possible by the passion of our listeners and customers. Thanks a lot to all of you and stay safe out there.